Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The provincial government has introduced legislation that will allow municipalities to place liens on the assets of oil companies that are not paying their property taxes. Gordon McBain will join us. He's a professor in the Department of Geography and Environment at uh, University Western University. And with all the focus on the Kyle Beach story, what do parents need to know about sports organizations and how they can make sure their kids are safe? So the province of Alberta announcing last week that they're going to take some steps to try and remedy a situation that really doesn't make a lot of sense to me, and we'll see if we can get some explanation about this. Alberta municipalities are owed somewhere in the neighborhood of about a quarter of a billion dollars in unpaid taxes from oil companies. And some of these companies are no longer going concerns, but some of them are. They're up and running, still doing business, and not paying property taxes. And municipalities are owed this money. So let's find out where we are, how we got here, and where we're going. We're going to chat with Paul McLaughlin with Rural Municipalities of Alberta, uh, Paul, thanks so much for your time this morning. Really appreciate you joining us. Good morning. Thanks, Shay. Appreciate you uh, having the chat with us today. It's a really interesting subject. First of all, how did we get to a point where these companies just don't pay their property taxes in Alberta? How did that happen? It's an amazing story, Shay, because when you really look at it, uh, I get asked often, why was there this large loophole in, in tax recovery? Um, it didn't matter. Uh, the fact is, is that really around 2016, companies started taking advantage of really what's a loophole, the lack of the ability for us to uh, get the taxes due to us. And and a few small group of companies have been taking advantage of it since then. Some have gone defunct. As you said, we had numbers collected last year around the same time, and 57 to 60% of these companies are still working on the landscape. And it's a tax loophole, right? I mean, there's just it's not really a loophole. It's just the fact that there's no enforcement, correct? That's exactly it. There's just no ability. Uh, normal taxpayer, you, you don't pay your taxes, you get notice, etc. But we, we ultimately have available to us judicial sale um, where we can actually seize property and yeah. sell it and, and get the, the money owed to municipalities. That is not available to us or was not available to us for oil and gas operations. That was just written into the law that the oil and gas companies aren't subject to what everybody else is subject to. Yeah, and, and you know, obviously, it comes with some complexities on the ability to sure. seize assets, etc. I mean, we uh, uh, there, there isn't uh, the ability for for municipalities to run on gas facilities, which you have to be licensed to seize those properties too, as well. So we announced last week on Thursday that that's going to change. Uh, municipalities w- will now be given the power to basically apply a lien on the assets of these companies that aren't paying taxes. Correct. That's correct. Yeah, the ministry has been working hard at putting that together. So uh, we're excited that I think it'll move a few folks. And, and really what this is really about is we need folks to walk in the door. We're compassionate. We work with the oil and gas industry. Um, come in and make a payment plan. Um, find a way to find resolution, and hopefully this will push a few people through the door. Uh, we don't want to execute it as an enforcement method. We want folks to come talk with, talk to us and, and make sure that we get a deal going and, and get those taxes paid. Yeah, the minister was asked about that. Like, are we going to see a flurry of legal activity? And he said, and it sounds like you're saying the same thing, that's not what we're looking for. Basically, it just provides a little bit of leverage to start this discussion and make them aware of the fact they're going to have to pay. 
That's our hope. I mean, obviously, there is uncertainties. When, you know, if you move through sort of the, uh, for lack of a better term, the enforcement chain or, or the execution of a lien, um, the ability to seize oil and gas facilities, as we said, is, is very complex. So this is a nod. This is a gesture from the government and hopefully a strong gesture uh, to have folks pay their taxes. I mean, it's, it's very important to, to uh, rural Albertans. It's important to all of Alberta. And, and I always have this conversation that this is really tied to our ESG story, our environmental, social and governance. Uh, ethical oil is some of the words that are used. Uh, non-payment of taxes is a black eye to the entire industry. And, and as I said earlier, it's only a small a small part of the, the industry that's not paying their taxes. The majority are great citizens doing what they should do. When we talk about the money, I mean, a quarter of a billion dollars, that's a lot of money. How many municipalities are affected? Is it right across the province, or are there certain areas where this seems to be a problem more than others? Uh, it's definitely worse in sort of, I, I say, the legacy field, sort of the yeah. the, uh, the coal bed methane type. Uh, but it is pretty much, pro- there's very few. I think we're in the 50s, high 50s, out of the 69 that I represent. Uh, so pretty much every municipality has some level of tax owing to them. And these municipalities, of, of course, rely on this property tax revenue to fund whatever they do in their municipalities. Yeah, yeah this is a big deal. Um, I'll use my municipality, Penelope County, we're due $2.3 million. That's 15% of my tax roll. I can't deficit budget. Yeah. So that money has to come from somewhere. Typically, I have to draw that on reserves. Those reserves are intended to replace capital in my county. Um, it changes how we operate, and and I'll be honest. If this continued on the trajectory that it's on, uh, there would be a solvency compensation for uh, maybe up to a dozen municipalities in this province. If really, you know the trajectory it's on right now, they're that hard hit. It's that bad. I, I'm not going to lie to you. It's the the fact is there's municipalities that have burned out their reserves, which again were for replacing roads and and bridges. Um, I've talked to municipalities that are up to thirty percent of their taxes missing for uh, for 2020. Wow. Unbelievable. Now, you mentioned uh, a lot of these businesses that you're trying to deal with back taxes are still in business. So that's one thing. What about the ones that have gone out of business, that have gone bankrupt, that are no longer operating? Um, The province also giving you some room to move there as well, right? They are, yeah. And I think that that probably it's funny because we're talking about the lien, but, you know, the the PERC program is fantastic. I mean, you want to talk about a short-term remedy because I think what's what's unusual to people to understand is we actually have to prepay uh, school taxes. So municipalities actually get an invoice around this month, yeah. and we have to pay it upon receipt. Uh, and but you imagine some of that's not been paid by, by well, in this case, in, in parts of the oil and gas industry. So that's a huge cash flow conversation. So I'm, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm just about as more appreciative of that than the super lead or the special lead because uh, that's so helpful to municipalities. Yeah, it just gives you a little more room to, to handle this. Um, and also you can, you can be put on that list of creditors, right, in terms of companies that have gone bankruptcy. You're now, uh, how high up on that list are you in terms of, you know, uh, resolving debt? Yeah, well, exactly. And, you know, the special lien does provide us uh, second-in-line provision, which uh, first-in-line is environment, which has been showed by, by Supreme Court, uh, the Redwater case. So that puts us up in the top. Uh, top list of, of creditors, so I okay. think it's important too as well. So there's there's a lot of moving pieces here, but uh, we're excited to work with the ministry to push this through. Um, it's not the ultimate solution, and, and I'll, I'll keep saying what I keep saying. Uh, you just should not be able to operate an oil and gas facility in the province of Alberta without paying your taxes. Makes sense. And, and we're really asking the AER to try to enforce that. Okay. Excellent stuff. Thanks so much for your time today, Paul. Appreciate it. Have an excellent day. Thank you. You too. That is Paul McLaughlin, who is with Rural Municipalities of Alberta, a quarter of a billion dollars roughly. And as you heard, it affects virtually 
every single municipality within the province of Alberta that are owed some kind of property tax from oil and gas companies. And now the new legislation says they will be allowed to apply liens to the assets of oil and gas companies that haven't paid their taxes, which really changes it. Because basically, up until now, these oil and gas companies could just basically ignore the tax bill if they wanted, and not all of them did. Um, But those that did, there was really no legal way to try and enforce them or to pressure them to pay their taxes uh, with this new legislation. That will change. And all those promises will be nothing but blah, 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 to coin a phrase. And the anger and the impatience of the world will be uncontainable unless we make this COP26 in Glasgow the moment when we get real about climate change. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who uh, is hosting COP26, it's being held in Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, He was opening up the conference this morning with those remarks and you can hear that's the context they're going into um it's the 26th annual united nations climate change conference it's underway now uh it's a two-week conference that brings people together essentially it's the entire world they're saying as many as 150,000 people might be there at some point over the next couple of weeks you've got um almost 200 nations that are signatories to the climate change plan with the u.n Uh, World leaders, of course, uh, an army of negotiators. You've got celebrities, activists, protesters, you name it. They will all be there. And as Boris Johnson says, this is a make or break moment. And a lot of the other leaders are saying the same thing. Now, it comes right on the heels of the G20 summit that just wrapped up in Rome. Uh, Leaders of the world's 20 biggest economies there struggled, though, to come up with a final statement that tried to balance the obvious climate change pressure that they are all feeling also with the immediate pressure that they're feeling right now because of inflation and soaring energy costs. Those are the two competing narratives. Not exactly the kickoff that watchers of COP26 were hoping for, but here we are. Tremendous pressure to make sure that COP26 is more meaningful. So joining us now to give us some insight on what happens and what we might watch for is Gordon McBain, who is a professor emeritus at the Department of Geography and Environment, and he was also a Canadian minister's advisor at COP2, COP3, COP8, and the opening speaker in the scientific event held in Paris before the Paris Agreement meeting. So he's been involved with COP before many, many times. Delighted he could join us this morning. Uh, Mr. McBain, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Now, this conference, uh, you heard what Boris Johnson had to say to kick things off, calling it the most important COP conference yet, um, and meaningful progress is an absolute must. How intense is the pressure that these world leaders are feeling? Well, I think the pressure is quite intense, as you said, the, and as the Prime Minister said, the, the numbers are showing very clearly that although the agreement in Paris in 2015 was to you know, strive towards maximum temperature change of 1.5 or 2 is the absolute maximum, uh, and the track we're on now, according to the best analyses, is about 2.7 degrees Celsius, and that difference is very large in terms of the global impact. And we should also note that when we talk about these global numbers, uh, they are the global averages. In Canada's warming 
overall about twice as fast as that. So when we say two degrees globally, we need four degrees in Canada and probably six or seven in the Arctic. And as you mentioned, you know, a lot of these numbers that they've talked about, they've talked about for a number of years, and now they're getting a lot of criticism as well, uh, that really they haven't taken enough action. I mean, that's part of what they're facing as they go into this. There's going to be a lot of protesters and a lot of people really calling on them to actually do something meaningful. I agree. I mean... Well, as you noted, I was the, the minister's advisor in the Kyoto Protocol negotiations back in 1997. We came back with agreement. The parliament, act, well, in a sense, voted and formally agreed to it, but the overall Canadian uh, emission reduction targets were not, uh, well, they were substantial, but they were not met, uh, and that's been happening around the world. And the result is we have a warming climate. We're now at over 1.1 degrees C warming compared to the reference level in the 1800s. And this is having impact. We're seeing increased numbers of floods, wildfires, as you're seeing in Alberta, Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, storms and these kind of things. And the impacts on, well, quite frankly, small developing countries, particularly small island states with the sea level rising, is really horrific. When we take a look at um, how these conferences work with that many people, you know, just armies of negotiators and lobbyists, uh, having been part of these conferences before, what's the actual process like? How does any work get done? Well, my experience in it, which is relatively limited in that sense, but is that there is a few sort of important events that happen. I mean, quite frankly, when I was at the Kyoto meeting, I would have said, and as I was saying to the ministers that I was with back, you know, that about four days before the conference was due to end, is, is I don't think we're going to get anywhere. Yeah. The agreement just isn't there. But then the U.S. vice president of the time, Al Gore, showed up unannounced. I didn't know he was coming anyway. And walked around, held private meetings. I saw him pass by, held meetings, and there seemed to be an overall swing in interest and action. And the result was an agreement, which unfortunately was not fully, uh, in fact, you know, let's say, done by the countries that agreed to it. And a similar thing actually happened in Paris, as I understand. I wasn't there, but, you know, the uh, U.S. President Barack Obama's plane was already apparently at the airport, uh, charged up, ready to go, take him home, when he heard there was a meeting of China and a few other countries, and he just went and walked in. And made an impact. <laughs> yeah, so, so these things happen due to individual actions by big leaders, and uh, the overall, uh, it's hard to judge exactly how it happened, the, the, because it's a huge political process, and various economies competing one versus another, and the reality is we not only have to reduce emissions, which is very important, but its benefits are relatively some decades away. Whereas, and there's also the need to do adaptation, build our climate-resilient yes. communities, which is essential because we're undergoing this climate stress now. Um, when we talk about that, we, we we do sort of, I mean, the adaptation is sort of, like, like you say, we're at a point now where, um, okay, no matter what we do, we still have to adapt because the change has happened in many, many different ways. So we don't hear a lot about that, though. It's all about reducing emissions and carbon neutral and all that sort of stuff. We don't hear them talk a lot about adaptation. Do you think that will be a, a topic of discussion in some circles there? I think it will be in some circles. But as you said, I mean, I think the reality is that they don't talk much about it. I guess in one sense, adaptation is a 
what you do in your own country, although there is a very important, there was a commitment made years ago, which for which has now been delivered, of a huge, I think it was $100 billion of support that would come from the G20 countries to the very underdeveloped countries who haven't, who are being really impacted on this in horrific ways, as I said. Um, so adaptation is very essential, and you know, the climate system responds relatively slowly in the sense of it it's warming now is not due to what we put in last year of greenhouse gases but the total over the last hundred years mm-hmm. and if we cop, cut our emissions to zero tomorrow we'd still warm for at least another three four decades um yeah. much is being made of course about the fact that um china is not there at least the, the leader is not there same thing with mm-hmm. russia saudi arabia mm-hmm. turkey some of the major polluters, so I mean, when you're talking about global climate change, isn't it essential that these parties be involved in any discussion? Yes, it is. It's very essential, as you said. I mean, the, because of the lifetime of CO2 in the atmosphere, the climate system itself doesn't really care where it came from. Yeah. Within a two or three, four years or so, if you put the CO2 up into the atmosphere, say, from Canada or from China or from wherever, Within three or four years, it's mixed around the globe, sure. and it stays there for almost in round numbers a century. And the result is that we have to deal with this on a global basis. Um, there's also, you know, a lot of discussion, increasingly so, in the last few years of removal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, technology solutions. You know, doing this this thing in Iceland that seems to be in the media a lot. That may work, but I think we have to be very cautious in terms of jumping into that as the solution, because the science that I know of hasn't yet shown that these things really work in a, let's say, in an economic and environmentally important way and can, can actually sustain that kind of approach. Um, and it's not just a pledge to, you know, reduce emissions. There's, there's a lot of money on the line here, too. Some of these big countries yes. talking about spending billions and billions of dollars in this. Yes, that's correct. It's not, as you say, it's the the emissions, uh, there's billions of dollars, but there's also in the support of adaptation in other countries, which I think is, I think I look on climate change as what I would call an international and intergenerational issue of equity and ethics. We need to deal with it on an international basis. We need to deal with it recognizing that it's not ourselves right now that are going to get the benefits. It's our children and grandchildren. And if we don't do things now and soon, then our children and grandchildren and all those around the world are going to see the impact even more strongly than we're seeing them now. And so it's a an issue that we really have to look at in that very broad context. And that, quite frankly, politically, is not always an easy thing to do. No, certainly not. Um so what uh, what will you be watching for over the next two weeks to see that actual real progress is being made? What are sort of the indicators that we should be uh, aware of? Well, I think there's quite a few groups there uh, that will be reporting on it independently of governments, and I think it's worth to try and follow those organizations, the International Institute of Sustainable Development-based, well, its headquarters is in Winnipeg, but it has offices in Canada and other parts of the world, has always provided pretty factual and science-based reporting on a regular basis, and I assume they're doing that this year. I've, 
I used to be on its board of directors, but I that ended around 2010. But anyway, there is that organization, and there are others of similar type that um, that will credibly respond, report on what's happening, and we'll also be watching to see, quite frankly, usually here through the media, when it is those major heads of state yeah. come and undo, and they they will hold private meetings. It will be which we won't hear about other than the fact that they were there and met. But hopefully there will be stimulation. I mean, Boris Johnson seems to be really pushing this, and there's a certain amount of extra pressure on the U.K. being the host to make it even more beneficial. But the Europeans, generally speaking, have been, at least the Western European countries, have been more uh, progressive on this issue than other parts. Okay. Excellent insight. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. McBain. really appreciate your time this morning. Well, I really appreciate you uh, inviting me because it's a good way of uh, addressing the issues and, and hearing from it, and I'll hear, listen to other people who you talk yeah. to to see about how this goes. Certainly. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you very you much. Bet. Bye-bye. That is Gordon McBain, who is Professor Emeritus at the Department of Geography and Environment, and as we said, he was a Canadian minister's advisor at COP2, COP3, and COP8. So he's been there. He's been on the ground. He's been in the boardroom. going to be another interesting day in the Kyle Beach affair regarding the Chicago Blackhawks and in fact the National Hockey League uh, in a larger um, way. Today we could see possibly, uh, no word yet, uh, Don Fear, who is the head of the NHL Players Association, the NHLPA. Uh, His future in that role is in question today. The executive board of the NHLPA is holding a call today to discuss the situation. Um, he put out a statement last week, Fear did, publicly acknowledging that his union was part of the systemic failure that saw Kyle Beach's allegations against the video coach go unaddressed for more than a decade. Uh, but the executive director is expected to be pushed for answers on how exactly that breakdown happened when he speaks with player reps from all 32 teams today. If 18 of them vote to remove him as head of the NHLPA, that's it, he's gone. Um... He he was informed of the incident shortly after it happened uh, and didn't appear to pursue any action at all at the time. So he's going to have to answer some questions about that. As you know, uh, Joel Quenville already out as coach of the Florida Panthers. He was coach of the Blackhawks at that time. Stan Bowman has resigned as GM of the Chicago Blackhawks and uh, USA's Olympic entry. Uh, he was involved with the Blackhawks at that time. So a lot of questions. And whenever we have stories like this that come up, I am certain... It causes a lot of concern among parents who have kids involved in sports. How could it not? So to talk a bit about that now, we have joining us Marie-Claude Aslin, who is CEO of the Sport Dispute Resolution Centre of Canada. Uh, Marie-Claude, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Hi, Shay. Thank you. Stories like this, obviously, uh, they're upsetting in so many different levels. But if you have a child involved in youth sport in any capacity... I'm sure it raises some alarm bells for parents, right? This is the one thing we all want to avoid. Well, I hope they do raise a concern. Uh, When you see that a pro male hockey player of adult age can be a victim, parents should definitely be on the lookout for the safety of their child in any sport program, but also other activities targeting youth. When we when we take a look at this, I mean, this is a sexual assault situation, obviously, which is horrific, but there are other ways, right? There are other ways that the power imbalance can cause 
Um, really unfortunate circumstances for young people. I mean, it's not just sexual assault pe- parents need to be aware of. Oh, you're right. Absolutely. Um, I think that, well, first off, just uh, sexual assault, you don't want to get that far before you, you know something yeah. is wrong. Uh, parents should also be aware of the grooming, which is a strategy that uh, sexual predators um uh, it's, a, it's different ways in which sexual predators will gradually build relationships with their victims. And, and parents can actually be fooled by that uh, grooming behavior into thinking that this person is the best thing that ever happened to their child. So um, I think that parents need to be educated about that. But there are also other forms of abuse and harassment that can be just as damaging for a child's mental health and self-esteem. And it includes uh, verbal, psychological, and physical abuse and harassment inappropriate use of social media, and so on. And I think they should also be on the radar of parents. Um, I've been involved in amateur hockey for a long time, many, many years, and I know the training and the education and the rules and the criminal background checks and everything that we all go through in order to be involved with Hockey Alberta and Hockey Canada. How important are those kinds of programs that um, amateur sports associations put into effect and do parents know enough about them, and should they know more? I think there has been increased attention to the issue of safe sports in the past few years that has led sport organizations to adopt policies that are a lot stronger than they used to be. But it remains um, for the parents. They should not count on others to protect their kids. Mm-hmm. They should be very proactive when they're searching for a good sport program And for that, they can be asking questions like, what policies do you have in place um, to protect my child and where can I find them? Um, Do you have the rule of two in place, uh, for example, as part of the the coaching? um, uh, Sorry, (laughs) I have a blank here, but the rule of two allows... Basically, it means you you cannot have a coach and a child alone. It has to be two adults and two players. You can never have a one-on-one situation alone in a dressing room or elsewhere. Exactly, and that's a rule that uh, comes out of the responsible coaching movement. Um, so that that's one that that should definitely be part of of all policies. But there's, uh, you know, what is your screening policy for coaches, officials, and volunteers? Um, if I see something, where where do I report? And if the person I want to report about is the same person, then where do I go? Yeah. Um, and other thing to remember is that sport programs are not a babysitting service. So be involved. Yeah. Um, be wary of programs that do not allow parents to watch practices. You should question them on that. Um, so I think you have to be involved as a parent um, and, and be there for, for, you know, to support their kids in, in their sport endeavors. And, um, there's a growing number of uh, provinces and territories who are also offering programs and assistance um, to help uh, sport organizations to deal with these situations. So you can ask um, what's going on in, in your jurisdiction. I imagine this doesn't just apply strictly to sport, though, right? I mean, we have kids involved in so many different kinds of activities. It's the same thing no matter what the activity is, right? Any child-serving organization, absolutely. Parents should ask those same questions when they register their kids to into other activities than sport. And I think you said something really important in terms of, but don't rely on these programs or don't rely on the association. It's your kid. Get involved, but also talk to your kid and, and, and get you know, get their take on how things are going, right? They, they may be difficult, but that that's probably most important. Well, it's, I, I think the parents have a responsibility to educate their kids about boundaries 
and 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 limits and and what adults or even other kids uh, should or should not do, um, and, and not just in sport again. But you can also um, have a conversation with uh, your kids about how they enjoy um, a particular sport environment. You know, have a conversation in the car on the way back, yeah. and uh, you know, after practice, after games, and and don't don't force kids into a particular sport. Maybe it's a sport that you really like, but maybe they maybe they don't like it, or maybe they're not um, happy in that environment. So let them choose how you want your kids to be active and healthy. But they should also have a say into um, how they will be active. Um, just give me if, your... if something if, if something odd is is taking place in that environment, they'll be looking for a way out, and you have to give them an opportunity. Uh, just give me your assessment. I started coaching hockey back in the '90s, and there was nothing in place. It's absolutely nothing for coaches at that time. It was you just you were given a bunch of kids. There was no framework. There was no policy. There was nothing. To what it is now, where it's intensive training, all kinds of rules, criminal background checks, we are making progress in this area, are we not? I think we are making progress. And I, I coached in hockey, actually, in, in the early 80s when, when girls didn't coach hockey. Um, and uh, so, yeah, there at that time, there was absolutely nothing, yeah. and, uh, and it was wide open for... I, I think there's been a lot of improvements um, Policies are stricter. There, there are screening uh, checks, but you know, it, if someone's never get caught, they're not going to come up on sure. a criminal check. So, yep. you don't want your kid to be the first one, right? Absolutely, yeah. Some great, great uh, insight today. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you, Shane. Have, have a nice day. You too. Bye. That is Marie Claude Aslin, the CEO of the Sport Dispute Resolution Center of Canada, and you know, I think it's something that we've. I mean, obviously, it started with Graham James. That's where this started uh, when it sort of came to light. And I know that's when a lot of the changes started being implemented in Hockey Canada and Hockey Alberta. And I've been with Hockey Edmonton for a long time. And um, it's not perfect, and I'm not saying that, but I'm saying if you're a parent involved, and I can only speak about hockey because that's what my kids were doing. Um, just I, I know the amount of work that's been done there, and I'm sure it's been done in other amateur sport associations and familiarize yourself with those programs. I think she makes a really good point. You're, but you're handing over your child to somebody for a certain period of time. Um, and it, you, you need to know what kind of steps have been taken before you do that to make sure that your kid is safe. And, uh, you know, like I say, all the associations should have that. And like she said, you know, I got a text here saying 4-H Canada has a safety policy for all leaders which must be completed for a club to even start. Same thing in hockey. It's called respect and sport, and it came right out of, you know, Theron Fleury, Sheldon Kennedy, the work that they did. Um, they implemented this program, and if your kid wants to attend, wants to step on the ice, they have to have their parent has to have completed this. So they have an understanding of this is the program. This is what we've done. This is what you need to do. Coaches take a four-hour, I think, respect in sport thing where it goes through all these different scenarios and tells you exactly what to do. And that rule of two that she mentioned, where you can't have a coach and a kid alone in a dressing room, just doesn't happen. You have to call in another coach off the bench if a kid gets hurt or bring down a parent. There has to be two adults present at all times, so you can never get that sort of a situation. There's all kinds of rules that are in place. So you should explore them, familiarize yourself with them, and make sure that they're followed. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.